This episode has bonus content only for subscribers to the Deep State Radio Network. I wish everything in the world could be free, but becoming a member isn't expensive and has many benefits, including ad-free listening and bonus content on all the Deep State Radio podcasts. We know not everyone is able to pay for a subscription, so do what you can. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello there, and welcome to a very special episode of The Secret Life of Cookies. My guest is David Hogg, and we get into it all today. Gun legislation, corruption in politics, and how good food has started the healing process with survivors of gun violence and their families. And while my Bosco snoozes on a nearby rug, you may hear David's terrier, Tater, protecting the family from the mailman. So let's get to it. Hello. I just successfully flipped my third crepe. Everybody, and welcome to David Hogg, my guest this morning on The Secret Life of Cookies, who has just successfully, as he said, flipped his first, no, his third crepe. So what you can't see, because we don't have, you know, we this is a podcast, but I am here with David Hogg, who is, famously an activist and co-founder of March for Our Lives and soon to be world famous amateur chef, I think is what's going on. I'm willing. <laughs> he will be the next host of um, Top Chef. No, I'm just kidding, folks. <laughs> it could be a positive, you know, he probably has the skills. So anyway, thank you so much for coming to my kitchen. Thank you for inviting me into yours. Um, it's good to have you. You have chosen today to relax. I get it or no, making crepes. Why have you become an amateur chef and why crepes? I think, first of all, thank you for having me on. But to answer your question, I think the reason why I got really into cooking and stuff is because first and foremost, I grew up cooking a lot with my mom Mm -hmm. as her sous chef. But I think for me, it was in response to, you know, um, my, a lot of PTSD and everything that I have and anxiety. Mm -hmm. I found it really hard for a while, especially during the pandemic to eat. Because it, things just didn't taste that good to me. Mm-hmm. Like everything just kind of felt bland. It kind of just felt like every day was the same. Every, and I needed a way to like disrupt that. So I started cooking a little bit and got really obsessed with how to make really good eggs, like scrambled eggs and stuff. And from that, I started thinking a lot about how, what role food plays in movements and making change. Because, <laughs> you know, I think it's one of the few things that we can actually all, for the most part, agree on to some extent. From that, I, you know, I, I think one of the consistent things that I've seen in the work that I've done is the power of food for people, especially that have recently experienced a loss in their family from a gun violence and just sitting down and having a meal with other survivors. Because a lot of the time what happens is families or victims or, you know, survivors will kind of sit around and talk and it just becomes this constant conversation about how sad they are understandably and how traumatized they are. And at some point it is, you know, it's good to talk about that, but at a certain point it may, it, I believe it becomes counterproductive. And the only way that I've found to counter that is through really good food because it helps build community and culture. And I believe there's kind of like this like reverse pyramid of change that all starts with really good food. 
and it goes from food because it's it's what enables us to sit down and have conversations about what's in front of us or if the food's good enough no conversation and from that you build you know community you build friendship and community from that friendship and community when you focus on just having a conversation and sitting down and talking about things that are not literally the worst day of your life you know we're able to build community and culture from that we build persistence and from that persistence we build change so that's really why what has gotten me into food so much and especially becoming friends with people like Jose Andres and stuff and just seeing the effect that his amazing restaurants this is not an advertisement for Jose Andres's restaurants but seeing the effect that his restaurants can have on you know I've even recently when there are families from recent shootings in DC lobbying and stuff. I, you know, told Jose and some of the people from World Central Kitchen, his nonprofit, and I just brought them. We all had a meal and sat down together. And for many people, for many of those people, it was really like kind of like the first meal that they seemed to be able to have fully after the what had happened to them. And it's because the food was so good that like they could sit down and have a conversation and have that community. And it's really a beautiful thing because it tastes good. It makes you feel good. And I, I know one of the biggest enemies of, of movements in my experience are activists that are hungry and get even more angry because they're yeah, hungry irritable. on top of that. Right? Yeah. No one wants so a, that, hangry, a hangry activist, right? Absolutely not. It's what destroys movements because then people turn on each other. So we have to build community and have really good food to, to build the persistence necessary for a movement to succeed, in my view. I obviously, since I have a podcast about like politics and world culture and food, I agree with you 493,000%, right? Because I would hope so. (laughs) What am I doing here? For me, it's exactly the same thing. I love hearing you put that, the way you put it into words and the way you talk about it building upon things. Good food is not just delicious, but it shows nurturing and caring. That's that, you know, the whole reason, you know, is they used to say, you shouldn't show your love through food for people, which always really annoyed me because it annoys me too. And I'll get to that in a second. (laughs) I really, it really, really upsets me because people like liken it to like obesity. And that's why, you know, people are masking feelings with that. And I, there's nothing I can do to show love for a enormous group of people than creating a large Uh meal for them. And putting also healthy and food into it. You got to eat anyways. There's also healthy food, right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. You were going to say yeah. something about food is love. The thing that, that angers me about that and like that you can't show your love through food is like, I think it's the opposite. I think in many ways, like cooking for someone, it's like writing a, a letter to their stomach, to their <laughs> body instead of their brain saying, I love you, you know, and this summer I went up and lived with my girlfriend for a couple of weeks in Boston. And when I was there, I had some time off and stuff. Cause it was after I marched and everything. And I, I said to her, I said, look, I'll make you a deal. Cause she can't, mm-hmm. she bait, she can't cook like at all. <laughs> and I love cooking. And I said, here's the deal. I will be at home all the time. Anyways, if you buy the food and do the dishes, I will do the cooking and I'll make you three square meals every day. And it will be amazing. And she agreed to it. And she now hates me for it because she's like, I never can eat when when you're not here. Right. (laughs) And it's even more expensive and everything. And the thing that really reemphasized 
why I was right or reinforced my thinking around community and culture coming from food is that within, you know, we'd only been going out for a couple of months at that time. Mm-hmm. And within two days of me cooking for her, she said, I love you. Oh, there you go, right. folks. Thank you very much. It's been a great podcast and good night. Yeah, um, <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So screw anyone that says food is not love. Obviously one it. must show love in many different ways, but there's nothing. I mean, it's a cliche, but let's go for it. Let's make the t-shirt, right? Food nourishes your mind and your body. So let's get into the like the weeds here of the crepe you're making. I will before, show like, you. I burst process. into tears to meet somebody who so agrees with me about food. Oh, of course. So what I do is I take my recipe. I think it, I, so it comes from my favorite YouTube channel. One of my favorite YouTube channels, which is called Binging with Babish. Oh, I love um, Binging with Babish. Yeah. And I love it because I was a, you know, I love really good cinematography and mm-hmm. Babish just has like the best narration voice I think I've ever heard in my life. Literally, I showed my girlfriend it and she's like, oh, I watch these all the time, even though I don't cook. And it's just because I really like his voice. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> think know, he actually funny. got my son into cooking. My son's 16 and he was watching them when he was like 12. And he was like, I yeah, yeah, he helped get me into cooking because it, it's I can listen and follow directions very well. And what's great about YouTube is that for somebody like me with pretty bad ADD, I just mm-hmm. rewatch the video and click back, 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 back. Cause like every time I probably rewatch each part like a hundred times. He's probably made like a hundred dollars off of me in ad revenue. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here for it. I wish it was more, but totally agree. yeah, so that, that's where I got this crepe recipe. But I think Babish said he got it from Alton Brown. Don't take my word for this, but it's roughly two eggs, a cup of flour, half a cup of water, three quarters of a cup of milk mm-hmm. and a dash of salt. I'm pretty sure. And a cup of flour. Mm-hmm. Mixed together very finely. No lumps, right? No. Although I've had to start cheating on the recipe because in the recipe that Babish has, he says leave it in the refrigerator for an hour and I, I just get too impatient. So I leave it in there for like 15 minutes maybe and then I pull it out and like screw it. I recommend an hour though if you really want to get down into it. But I'll discuss it, the methodology it helps, in a second. It helps to um, hydrate the flour and makes for a, a moisture right. and also flavors improve too as well and these are the best i you know i'm not gonna lie these are the best crepes i've ever had far better than Mm. any restaurant i haven't been to france or anything these are far better than any restaurant i've ever been to not to brag but to brag they are that but to brag and it's not just me that says that it's pretty much everybody that i've ever given them to the thing that frustrates me is that i you know right now like i'm at a house in dc over the summer Mm -hmm. like just chilling out here for a minute but what frustrates me is i'm kind of i'm a little far, too far from the city to be able to cook stuff and immediately bring it there and still have it warm so when i'm with all these veterans in dc right now that are working on the on the packed act i just there's nothing more that i want to do than to make them crepes and everything and bread and bring it to them even though they already have an enormous amount of food but i can't do that because it would take too long to drive there and it would be cold by the time i get there but i'll get into my methodology of crepe making in a second i just need to take this one out of the pan you're going to love my American crepe maker. It's very fancy. Do you, have an act- do you have a machine or do you use a oh, pan? Oh, yeah. That, the machine, one second, I'll get the name into it. I'll, sh- I'll show you what I'm doing on video, even though nobody else will be able to see it. So I have my entire, my container of crepe mixture right here, mm-hmm. essentially. Beautiful. See that? And then I dump it in like this on like medium, low, medium, high heat. I don't know. Just not ridiculously high. So I pour it in like that. 
But then, that's a non is that a nonstick pan you're using? Yes. And then I go like this. This is the American crepe maker. His name is David with a saucepan. Oh, and you just tilt it around. <laughs> and I just keep you, tilting it until it starts like setting up kind of. For those at home listening, what I'm doing is I take the saucepan and I pour the the very thin crepe mixture into it. And then I I kind of swirl it around by tilting it in the air. And that's my American I'm making air quotes here, crepe maker. And you have some seriously good wrist technique. Do you do anything with your crepes? Sugar, lemon, jam? Oh, I've, I haven't thought about the lemon stuff. I, I, I love chocolate. So I get chocolate spread and I put it in there and then I get strawberries that are like so ripe. They're like almost overripe. So they're especially sweet. And I think that's because not to get into the science of it, but what I... What I would think the science is, is that there's bacteria that are in, in the strawberries and stuff that start to break down the sugars more. And like, they basically break down over time. Cause like the proteins in the cell walls and everything kind of break down. Cause like they run out of ways to like take care of themselves mm-hmm. and it makes it especially sweet. So that's typically what I do. It's the best way it's, it's that, or pour, like putting a little bit of sugar over some sliced ones is the best mm-hmm. way to bring it like either. If you get the ones that have come on a truck, you know, from far away and they have to be white in the middle, eating them a little overripe, that's exactly the thing to do. Or to put sugar over them and like sugar and rum and let them sit. Uh, Ooh, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. Or Grand Marnier. I also make bread and a bunch of other stuff, but sorry, I don't mean to interrupt the interview and just solely talk about food, although I could. You could, because this is really kind of why I'm here. Um, so you also, did you become one of those uh, COVID bread bakers? Kind of, but with a twist in that I don't do sourdough because I don't have, I don't have the attention span to keep that starter alive. And also it's such a hassle. You know, I grew up in California until I was 14. I grew up going to Disneyland and eating the sourdough, you know, bread and everything and eating it at home all the time. I don't need to make it. It's not a huge deal for me. I will leave that to the supermarket to make, and I will stick to making easy bread easy-ish, which is called mm-hmm. no-need bread, which is awesome. It's, it's super easy. It's so it's good. A, it's so it's good. Absolutely classic recipe. And I am the same way because I too have ADD. To me, the idea, I have two children, um, a husband, and two cats and a dog, and I well, don't need you another don't, You don't pet. need a third child. Yeah. Exactly. And everyone's like, oh, I have to go feed I'm going on vacation. I'm going to give my sourdough starter to somebody. I'm like, no, yeah, no I can't like, care about Are we going to start opening sourdough starter hotels, like pet hotels? <laughs> exactly. Will you accept my sourdough? Do I have to pay extra if I bring my sourdough starter to the hill? Yeah, um, exactly. Or on the I'll plane. Be out, exactly. I'll be out for the day. Could you have someone come in and feed it? Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. And I, I'm all my, fa- I'm a lazy person. Well, no, I have ADD. And so for me, no need bread is terrific. I make a English muffin bread. It's a recipe from King Arthur. Whoa. I have nothing to do with the recipe. And it's, you literally, you mix it and then it does, and it has baking soda and yeast. And so fast acting yeast and baking soda take care of all the different rises that you want. So does it have wow. the deepest bready flavor ever? No. Can you toast it and slather it in butter? Yes. Yes. And the butter is really important too. You can't just use any butter. You got to use high quality butter it's really important it does taste different it tastes completely different and i like salted butter really yeah i like a salted butter because i think it adds 
the flavor, right? Fat yeah. is flavor, salt enhances yeah. flavor. It's all those things. So when you are, haven't been cooking, you it really has been a busy, busy summer for for an activist like David Hogg, I've got to say. Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been a little bit of good and in my humble opinion, some not so good. Biden passing a bill that was three decades, that hasn't been passed, the kind of bill that hasn't been passed in three decades. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Jump in at any point here, but Pelosi putting off that vote, not yep. a good thing. And the Supreme Court ruling, which being a person who lives next door to New York, I live in New Jersey, which has the some of the strongest gun laws in the country. And it makes me feel safe and happy. And allowing New York to have like open carry is just nuts. I mean, I'm glad Kathy Hochul popped in and said uh, Times Square and other places like that. No, you can't have an open carry. I cannot imagine being in New York City and having people open carry. I I just wouldn't know what to do with myself. Like, I think in the past three months, the movement has made more success than has been made in three decades, Mm -hmm. which is great, right? Yes. I think... Yeah, what do you see as the successes? Well, first of all, we passed a law and that hasn't happened in my lifetime. Like Mm -hmm. a a law to increase gun laws or change gun laws or strengthen them rather. That hasn't happened in basically 30 years. And we've also passed 20 gun laws at this, or about 20 gun laws at the the state level uh, this Mm -hmm. summer, which is great. The Supreme Court's a setback, obviously, but that, that... that ruling really is about, you know, open carry stuff. And it's not just about, you know, laws individually. So there, you know, there's some things that we can work around in there. And the states that have laws, you know, like Massachusetts and stuff that may be impacted are working around that. I think it's a little ridiculous that the Supreme Court, you know, claimed to go with precedent and everything just went against a law that has been in place for over 100 years, basically, in New York. Yeah. But we've absurd. noticed some problems with the Supreme Court this summer, haven't we? Uh, slightly. Uh, um, yeah. Not to mention this independent state legislature theory case that's coming up that is terrifying. It would basically decide that if Florida, for example, voted for you know a Democratic or Republican president or whatever it is, let's say it's a Democratic president and it's a Republican mm-hmm. state legislature in Florida, that the legislature could legally decide that it doesn't matter how the state voted in terms of the popular vote within Florida, the state legislature can decide where its electors go for president, effectively overturning our democracy even more than it has been. And that's not hyperbole. Like, that's a real thing. That's a real thing, um, right? And it's not being done illegally like Donald Trump tried to do. This would no, be... trying to legally do it. Very concerning, but we're making progress. And the good news is, too, besides money, I have the most valuable thing on my side that one can mm-hmm. have in politics, which is time. I'm 22 years old, as are most of my younger friends. And we, in some ways, we don't have time on our side because these things are so are happening so often. But in some ways, we do as our long term, you know, worst case scenario. I think my greater fear at this point, and, you know, maybe this is just me being a, a liberal who's freaked out right now, mm. but I don't, but I you're don't not, think so. You're, I, not, you're not alone as a freaked out liberal these days, right. just, you know. Um, yeah. As somebody who's been studying a lot of, you know, American history and the history of American conservatism and the U.S. intelligence community, like in college, because my, my major is history, I am terrified. Because I feel like a lot of the books that I've been reading uh, and a lot of stuff that I've been learning about 
you know, in the history of like different revolutions and stuff and not, not so good ones too. You're really similar to what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't think right now we have leaders that are matching that moment as Democrats personally. And it's, it's hard to negotiate or it's hard to hold the idea in your head that yes, in my view, we obviously, I think that we do need more Dems obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, that at the same time, I don't know if the people that we have as leaders right now, you know, the people that have been in power for decades and are in part responsible for many of the issues that we have today from mass incarceration to the lack of action on climate change and all these other things, because they were, they have been empowered those times too. They didn't act fast enough. Right. I don't think it's just enough to vote for the same Democrats over and over again and go with the same methodology of just saying, we just need to vote and everything will be fine. I think Mm -hmm. what we need to do is we need to vote and hold people accountable and and make people do things that are literally the bare minimum to help save our kids in their schools and save our planet. Because in the short term, our kids are going to die in these school shootings and from gun violence outside of their schools because it's the leading cause of death for young people. And in the long term, it's going to be climate change and environmental and societal collapse because our society right now, one of the flaws that our democracy has right now is that is our inability to plan beyond two or four years. We can't. That's what keeps me up at night. There are other countries that are out there that that don't that are not democracies that can plan for forty or fifty years, and it's not to say that I that I condone them, right? Yeah. And that I support them in any way. But it is a problem that we have to address within our democracy, which is that in order to address climate change, in order to address the fact that we're using effectively two Earths worth of resources right now, we are going to have to learn how to plan forty years in advance. Not only if our country wants to survive, but if our species wants to survive. And right now we're not there. And I don't think we have the leaders that are doing that because they are caught up in the same myopic mindset that brought us here in the first place. Absolutely. And one of the things I saw that you had said somewhere or the other was that in studying history and movements, you saw that there's a difference between the way that liberals and conservatives organize themselves like different planets right and i think it has a lot of implications i think you're absolutely right and i think it has implications on our how we approach the midterms and you know this two to four year system that we have right now because what is the difference why are these conservatives more successful is what i'm asking well it's the same reason a lot of these other countries that that are not democracies are successful too which is that conservatives plan for the long term and invest in a diversified set of assets mm-hmm. with decades in the market of change making, if you will. Like my the best metaphor I've thought of for all of this is like investing. If we took a group of like your generic, you know, your major liberal versus major conservative donors, their investing philosophy and creating change and building power is completely different. The way that conservatives do it is that they invest with time in the market. They invest for the long term. They understand that just funding one program. Imagine if you went to you know, Steve Jobs at Apple and you said, okay, we're going to fund the iPhone for one year, but we don't want to fund any of your staff because that's not sexy, but we do want to fund this one project for a year, right? If they were investing, they would invest with 50 years in the market with the S&P with continuous investments every single year, not only growing their interest on their principal with compounding interest, but with adding into that principal every year consistently, no matter if the market is up or down. They're basically mm-hmm. dollar cost averaging 
change making every year with the diversified set of assets like the S&P or whatever it might be, right? Liberals do this. They say to themselves, oh my God, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a terrible person. They, you know, they're horrible. I'm going to go and throw as much money as I can into her race, even though literally a ham sandwich with an R next to its name would win that race running against Jesus. It could be anyone because it is such a gerrymandered district, right? And it is so it also right. turn out that Jesus is far too liberal for them. Right. Exactly. If they, if they actually forbid. met him, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so conservatives have this 50 year mindset, hundred year mindset with diversified assets that they invest in continuously. Liberals will invest for one cycle emotionally and not strategically. And they will be far more willing to pour millions of dollars into running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Who, you know, I am no fan of, obviously, but they'll pour all that money in there when we could win state legislatures in Arizona and Pennsylvania and Michigan that are critical. We have to start winning state legislatures if we ever want to fix this stuff and addressing state Democratic parties because they're basically feeding troughs for consultants and people that have failed upwards their entire lives and their political careers that get paid way too much and underperform massively. So basically, the difference is that liberals tried to time the market and invest emotionally in whatever the most recent trend is, and they will change the next year and the year after and the year after. And this is a problem you know, for organizations like March, because we want to do this stuff, right? We're trying to do all this amazing shit, but people are far more willing to fund something like a March than they are to fund our staff to make sure that I'm able to follow up with people in D.C. on different suicide mm-hmm. prevention bills or build out an infrastructure in state legislatures that takes decades to build up the power around in the first place, because they would rather throw money at a march or something like that, which is great. And I'm thankful for that. But they aren't willing to invest in things that actually have high returns on investment, which are staff to build the infrastructure so that when we do march, we can immediately show up at legislators offices and demand that they act on this and say, if you don't, we're going to vote you out. Right. They don't want to invest in that. And that's this perpetual cycle that we're caught up in. We don't invest in local politics. We don't invest in state legislatures. And when we do, it's in the wrong ways. And we get so caught up emotionally with the national headlines that we think Congress is the answer to everything. When really the highest return on investment in terms of change making, Mm -hmm. 1000% state legislatures. Right. And it's only becoming more with the Supreme Court these yep. that we have right now. So they're putting yep. all the power in with the state legislatures. And mm-hmm. those are very easily and quickly are turning Republican in a lot of places that should concern us. March for Our Lives and every other sort of activist organization like that has to do that job. Maybe that's the primary job that needs to be done now is to educate people. Now that we've, you know, you've seen people become, you know, from the um, pink pussycat hat march to the to all the march for our lives sorts of gatherings that have happened. It, we have become more activist, I think, recently. But I think we yeah. also need to start educating people that it's not just enough. We need to go long term if we want to yeah. keep people. I think that's such an important message. And democratic donors in- that need to do that even more than we do as individuals, purely, you know. Right. In today's bonus, David reveals the kind of shocking behind-the-scenes challenges he has faced in trying to get the assault weapons ban passed, and how disaffected kids should hold on to some hope. 
Thank you so much to David Hogg for taking time with me today. Please consider supporting March for Our Lives with a regular donation. And you can follow me on my Substack at marissarothkopf.substack.com for all the recipes and extra content. Thank you. Wash your hands, vote, and keep on being kind.